0: Hello and welcome to another edition of That Can't Be Right. Uh, I am your host, Eric Ballinger. With me as usual is- Joe Miller. And today we have a special guest of uh, the soon-to-be Dr. Lisa Ridgely.
1: Hi, my name's Lisa. Um, I am soon to be, um, hopefully, Dr. Ridgely. I defend my dissertation in, well, just a few days.
0: Uh, So we have some questions for you.
2: So, thank you for at least coming onto the show with us for at least, I know, right before your dissertation, so I can't imagine the amount of stress you're going to go through, but since you know you've had this wonderful opportunity to talk about yourself so many times over the last year with postdoc interviews, um, job interviews, and just all those shenanigans that everybody loves so much to do until they're kind of sick of it. Why don't you give us a little bit of background about who you are, what you're kind of interested in, and what brought you to kind of where you are in re- like this area of research right now?
1: Okay, so um, right now I'm in uh, an educational psychology doctoral program, and my dissertation research is really focusing on how um, students regulate themselves and their learning differently around a task that. Is easy and a task that's difficult for them. And I think my journey to that topic um, was pretty interesting. Uh, I actually started out in an undergrad psychology program thinking I was going into uh, clinical practice Um, but through some my early research experiences I realized that that wasn't where my passions were. Um, So that's actually what led me into investigating educational psychology programs. I started um, at the time in undergrad, I was working as a supplemental instructor and a peer tutor. Um, So I got really interested in how to help um, students learn better, how to improve um, the approaches they were taking towards their own learning. So that led me into the Ed Psych program, and then I began working with faculty, in the program that we're doing things with creativity and self-regulated learning, and that really got me into um, understanding how we could capture self-regulated learning and that measurement, um, uh, kind of measuring self-regulated learning during a task really um, developed uh, my dissertation approach.
2: That's great. Um, so before we get like going into some of these questions, one of the things that we've had a chance to talk about personally outside of the podcast, I, we actually do sometimes work together. I come in and harass you about questions <laughs> that you actually know information to since I don't. And it's a lot easier just to ask you questions than scouring through lists of blog searches. Just to mention a little bit more, if you don't mind, Could you mention a little bit more about um, what transition between for you between undergrad and college? graduate school because you said you weren't always interested in educational psychology can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about what you were originally interested in in undergrad and kind of just dive a little bit more deeper because I think a lot of people especially with the social sciences have a similar story and I think you can speak a lot to it when it comes down to transitioning in undergrad to graduate school so more broadly yeah you just uh, just maybe not broadly but what was your original intention with undergrad
1: right So when I first started um, in undergrad, like I said, I was in a psychology undergrad program um, and I was actually minoring in criminal behavior um, because at the time I'd been told like if I wanted to go into counseling, the chances were pretty high that I would end up working with either like like a prison population. And I really wanted to work with adolescents. So the youth equivalent of that is like juvenile delinquency. So I started studying criminal behavior as kind of a a way to propel myself in that direction. Um, And I continued that way thinking I was going to finish my undergrad degree and maybe go on into a master's to become licensed as a counselor. Um, That's kind of as far as I had really started thinking about it. And then at some point someone told me, um, a a faculty member in my undergrad, I said, you know, you you really should start thinking about like a, a doctorate program. Have you ever thought about going for your Ph.D.? And I hadn't, so I started as I was working on my thesis, you know, we all get towards that point where, you know, you're doing your undergraduate thesis, you're applying for programs if you're going to continue on. And so I started applying for clinical and counseling PhD programs and working on my thesis research, which was really um, geared towards the clinical field and had to do with um, some implicit biases associated with terms we use to describe mental illness. So I spent a lot of time looking at DSM-5 and it was through those long hours that I realized I really didn't have the passion or the drive that it would need, that I would need to continue my studies in that area. Like I knew it was important and I still felt like it was really important for someone to do, but I knew that I wouldn't be fulfilled doing it. Mm Um, so I was actually terrified, um, to go talk to my advisor because I'd been telling her for three and a half years, this is the plan. And she'd been telling me, great, like you're, you're going in the right, like you're, you're meeting all the steps. Like you're going in the right direction. You're doing what you need to do. And then halfway through my last year, I set up a meeting with her to tell her that in fact, I was going to change the entire direction and I didn't know where I was going to go. So I was, I was terrified but i went in and i told her that i didn't think i was going into clinical or counseling anymore and she actually smiled and she said okay she's like let's just talk so we just talked for a little while and i had had a course with her that looked at um, psychological measurement mm-hmm. and in that class we talked a little bit about intelligence and the you know the iq distribution and how um, how much attention we give to people on one end of the extreme so for special education and how that's funded and regulated and how little goes to the other end of the spectrum just for gifted learners. So I talked about that and I talked about like the measurements around that. And she said, that is the first time I have ever heard you use the word passion. And I think we should explore that a little bit. So that coupled with like my employment um, at the time with the supplemental instruction and tutoring really led into, okay, like I really want to understand how people learn in general, and how gifted students learn, and how I can help all learners achieve better.
2: And I think that's like um, why I kind of wanted you to talk a little bit about it. Because you, you do sound a little bit more passionate. Even throughout that story, you get a little bit more passionate towards <laughs> the end. But for, I think for a lot of graduate students, especially psycholo- psychology students, um, they think there's only one avenue. Yes. You, you go in, you become a counselor, or you become a psychologist, and you that's what you do i don't Mm -hmm. think a lot of people are aware of that now that's not the point of this podcast but i think that speaks highly that you still had a passion for something with psychology but there is this alternative route don't have to be another freud another uh, i don't know how i I got tired of paying attention to counseling because they all had like radically different theories on like what the human condition was there is other options other than just becoming a counselor or a clinician so with that in mind, we'll get to kind of what why we have you on the podcast today. Something that is a little bit more personal, but talking about being a first generation undergraduate student or first generation doctoral or graduate student, and talking
0: a little bit about your experience with those.
2: So I think one of the first questions we wanted to start off with is
0: just actually before we okay, so let's start with Ben at the beginning. So you are a first generation college student. Period.
1: Yes, I'm a first-generation so, undergrad.
0: And that's, so how did that work out? I mean, I'm, there's lots of research about problems with that. <laughs> yes. How well does that research fit you? That Because that, uh, I, I know that typically, what is it, like 60% something like that, uh, first-generation students don't make it to the... What were, did you have any problems with that? Did you feel weird going into...
1: Yeah, so I think, I think some of the biggest problems I had was kind of, you know, at the beginning, like that first year is hard. And even before that, knowing things about applications and the process of like, like FAFSA. Luckily, my school held, uh, my high school held like a session for all the parents to come to so they could explain what this thing was. Because otherwise, like your parents are kind of like, you need my information for what? Like, you're going to school, like why do you have to put all of um, protected right. information? Right.
0: You're going to school, why do you need my tax documents? That doesn't make sense. Yeah.
1: yeah so luckily my high school kind of fielded that a little bit and had a, like a session for the parents and I think that was great and that really helped my parents. So I think some of the, like I I never felt like I was at risk for dropping out, but I think that first year, I think that is critical because because you don't have, like my parents didn't know what to tell me to expect from going to college or how to manage um, something as simple as like scheduling. So in high school, your schedule's kind of built for you. It's the same, you're in school all day. Well, then you, when you start looking at your schedule for undergrad, you have like maybe four or five classes. So you only have classes for a couple hours each day. So then it's like, what else are you supposed to do with your day? Like, How do you make an effective schedule? So something like that um, was, I remember really intimidating for me to kind of navigate. And then I'd never thought about, like, I'm not a morning person, so don't schedule classes for the, for the morning. Like, I just thought, like, well, you get up in the morning and you go to school. So and then I think a lot of the information I got about kind of what to expect from college came from teachers. And some of the information was helpful and some wasn't like I have one particular thing that stands out in mind. Um, one time a teacher told me a-, a high school students, like students that get A's in high school are C students in college. And the message that that communicated to me was you're not smart enough. Like you're going to go to college and you're going to be around all these people and you're not going to be smart. What I think they were trying to say is you may have to study differently in college. But that's right. not what came across. Well, yeah,
0: I definitely would <laughs> Going to give whoever that was the benefit of the doubt and say that if you didn't have to try very hard to do really well in high school you're because uh we've run into that with uh, like honor students that they do mm-hmm. obviously they did really well in high school and then they come mm-hmm. to college not so much <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a matter of how smart they are it's just they didn't have to work mm-hmm. so they don't know how to at this point
1: right uh, i think it, in, in ways to help like any student going into undergrad but especially first generation undergrads helping like sending those messages that like you have to study differently but there are resources to do so because they also don't know about those resources like i ended up at the end of my time in undergrad helping facilitate like supplemental instruction and tutoring but i never considered going to those things mainly because i didn't know they existed or how to access them kind of information about like these are the types of things available to you you know um and
0: I think that and a lot really of it cool. is information overload if you're not mm-hmm. acclimated to this kind of environment then there's a lot of stuff going on i know that our university which is still unnamed during the orientation they cover all of that mm-hmm. they talk about where to go to find financial aid they they have a special session with the parents and the students about the learning center and tutoring and all this stuff and they have a you, know, you meet with an advisor and they build your schedule with you and so I know they cover all of that. And then I talked to freshmen later and like I had no idea about this one. Well, yeah, I know you were told. but when you try to condense, oh, here's how the next four years of your life is going to go into roughly eight hours, things get lost. So sure.
2: <laughs> like I mean, I feel like, I feel like four years and eight hours are pretty comparable
0: right i mean because you're just scheduling it it's fine yeah it's just (laughs) just scheduling and i think that's one of the things that a first generation student really has to struggle with is that it doesn't even occur to them like oh i have the access to these services where are they Mm -hmm. i mean they're gonna lose the i have access to these services so every question that follows after that you know that that goes away too
1: right i think even something like like office hours like i don't think i understood those for a long time that like that was a built-in resource for me as a student. That They're professor's expecting were, you to show off Yes, <laughs> that it was like an approachable thing. Like it didn't feel that way to me. Like, um, you know, um, entering the academic environment, like professors seemed like they were, you know, like, I could, like it's, it, it took a long time for me to be able to approach them and feel like feel comfortable doing that.
0: Which is uh, fairly normal. Matt Groening, the Simpsons guy, he did a comic strip called Life in Hell, and one of the volumes is called School is Hell. <laughs> and, his, and his comparison to high school to college was that in high school, everyone cares about you and wants to make sure that you pass. In high school, in college, they don't really care. Which is broadly true, except for you end up with things like with office hours. If you don't show up to, you know, if I'm a professor, and you don't show up to my office hours, you don't care. So I don't care either. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, my with college professors, I'm hoping it's the same as yours, <laughs> is that they cared as much as I did. So if I was indifferent, then so were they. As a first-generation student, you don't know that in your first year, where you're just wondering, like, why are you not checking on me? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else checked on me. I, yeah. So did you have that? or
1: I think so. Um, one thing that I was also kind of weird with like my particular undergrad institution though that's different from where we are now so now we can kind of walk down the hall and we have like immediate access to our faculty like there's there's not like a physical barrier in my undergrad there was there were two desks that you had to like check oh. in at before you could get to a faculty member's door and wow. in fact they would call back and ask the faculty member if it was okay if you went back what's yeah. So it was kind of like, that's unique <laughs> to me. Like, I don't think that's like a particularly like a, like a, yeah, that's, yeah, but, uh, but like compounding that with like already feeling as a first gen student right, that I couldn't yeah. approach them. Like that made it even more intimidating because I had to like, felt like I had to have like this really good reason to get back there when really I just need to be like, Hey, I don't understand.
0: <laughs> Problem four is confusing. I
2: have no <laughs> idea what you want me to do. So. Do, do, they, do they have TSA check you in? Like, make sure that you, like, had only 3.5 fluid ounces of all liquids?
1: Not quite, but it was... Because, yeah, the only
0: yeah. faculty that I've encountered like that here are also administrators. Yeah. So, that's oh. the reason why...
1: It was kinda of like right. a doctor's office where you check in and then right. they call you back. <laughs> like, okay, they'll see you now. <laughs>
0: I kinda I, I kinda like
2: that because that would uh that would assume that you're like, Okay, so I have a what are your symptoms? <laughs> oh, you have a problem with chemistry and you're not understanding covalence bonds. Okay. Uh do who do you need to see again? Who's your provider? Like, that is I that is insane. That's a little bit okay, so that's a little bit different than <laughs> Most things, and I can't even imagine how intimidating that is for somebody just not really feeling familiar with college whatsoever. So
0: the transition from high school to college was a
2: little funky. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so then what was the transition like between undergrad to graduate school?
1: Right, so I think, obviously, those are both really big transitions, and I think they're, you have that mix of excitement and kind of fear. And, but I think the difference is, I think many people are what we would consider like first generation graduate students, like many people in a doc program don't have people in their families or, you know, immediately know people who've done doctorate level work. So I felt like it was more common, like there was more of like a, like I could find more people that were in the same situation i was everyone's Um, confused yes no one knows what's going on so it's fine that i don't but you also like you have a clearer like i had a clearer kind of image of like what college was like in general so i could kind of have like some sort of mental image of what to expect going into a grad school environment because i had some college experience
0: did any of those assumptions prove to be a problem, later?
1: I don't know if they approved, like, that they were a problem. They may have been a little, um, a little inaccurate. I mean, some classes, like, they felt just like undergrad. But then I had classes where, you know, they re- I was really like, okay, this is what graduate school is all about. Like, I'm questioning things. Like, I'm learning how to integrate theory. I'm learning how to do good research and critique research. I mean, I think certain things, like, I didn't really, like, have expectations for, like, I think I don't think I knew that comps were a thing.
2: <laughs> I don't. I don't think anyone knows that comps are a thing.
1: <laughs> I think they keep that a secret until you're in, and then they're like, "Oh, hey." <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I knew about comps from a different graduate program, which I, I was when I got my master's. You know, I, I watched other people struggling with comps in a different department. I'm like, oh, that sounds awful. Yeah. So apparently, that's just a thing. So, so comps and qualifying exams were this hidden secret, like
2: you yeah. just don't talk about whatsoever
1: yeah it kind of it kind of popped up (laughs) but um I mean I was I think I was also prepared because uh my undergrad advisor had actually gone through the program I'm going through now she knew the faculty and she knew some of the steps and she was also very I think once you start being open about like these are things that people struggle with like she was like I cried (laughs) during my (laughs) and just knowing that and she and she taught me what imposter syndrome was and she was like You're going to feel this. And when it does, I want you to reach out to me because you belong there. You can do this. Um, So just knowing that that was a thing, like her just being upfront with that, that it wasn't like, you know, not like sugarcoating or like rose-colored lenses. Like it's going to be hard, but you can do it. And I'm still going to be here.
2: We were kind of talking with that, and I want to see if this was pretty – general for you or you think it's um, specific to your general we actually had a chance to talk the other day about the idea of like how much of a life transition that can happen you said it was a life transition inventory or the life event inventory the life event inventory one of the things with that is it says these are the things more likely to happen for to lead to depression or to lead to high depression and uh, me and eric were talking
0: about it and most undergrads regardless going in if they just fill it out. So it's just a list of things that may, that may have happened to you in the last six months to a year. And it's things like getting married, changing a relationship, um, changing where you live, having the, the death of a loved one. And, and they're not, I mean, because it's looking at depression, people think, well, all these were probably horrible events. Like, No, getting married increases your chances of depression, which is a, a strange thing to think about, but it's a major event. You're, mm-hmm. Pretty much everything in your life changes. So when you look at the list of things on that, on that inventory, And then compare it to college freshmen. So they're changing their education. They're changing their job. They're changing where they live. They are almost certainly changing their relationship status. They are on all this stuff. And they're about, when you add everything up, it's about three points away on their scale from uh, hitting the 50% mark for a, a major depressive episode within the next two years. That's a normal college student. So I have no idea what it'd be
2: like for somebody who's a first generation student or even somebody transitioning to a graduate program, but I can see similarities, uh, or at least see some connections between the two. So kind of talking about that transition between like just high school to undergrad for that life event thing, and then also from graduate to, um, from undergrad to graduate, would you talk a little bit more about like your own personal transitions and how that felt for you,
1: So I think, like I said, the high school to undergrad transition, it just kind of felt like I didn't know what was coming at me. So that one was a little more kind of just unclear what to expect. And I think transferring from undergrad to grad school had its own kind of challenges for me because I moved states. So like kind of like that entire support system you have through undergrad of like, um, like your family's there well mine was in you know some capacity and i was only like an hour from them in undergrad and then i moved about six hours from them for graduate school so not only was i starting a new program but like i was starting living in a new state in a new city at the time i didn't have my own method of or m- transportation so i just had a lot of new and challenging experiences coming into graduate school that had nothing to actually do with graduate school,
0: so. Which is often the case. It's like, what's the really difficult part about grad school? Oddly enough, not the classes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: especially not that first year. It was, it was more um, kind of adjusting to an entirely different mm-hmm. um, lifestyle, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, one hour, six hours, right? That's the same amount of distance. <laughs> just a car ride, Extra a few extra songs in there halfway through. But, I mean, it's still a lot. And I think you just saying, I think it speaks so prevalently to like a lot of times we think the issues are just specific from the undergrad or the graduate experience, but it can just be generally things outside of that, Mm -hmm. outside of the school, outside of the classes. This next question was something I wanted to ask you personally, because I didn't know if you would like to talk about it, but did you recognize any issues by being a first-gen undergrad and like did you recognize specific issues at the time i
0: guess or were you more aware of them looking back on it specifically when you look at your classmates who you may or may not have recognized as not first generation students did you think that there was something odd about your experience versus theirs
1: yeah i mean i think in some ways i did but in others i didn't realize until afterwards and i think There are several interacting type factors, like, or intersectionalities, kind of. So um, I think often, but not always, first-generation students also come from lower SES backgrounds. And I think kind of that situation was more uh, apparent than um, maybe, like, and it kind of just compounded some of the first-generation things. Like, uh, so my undergrad, I went on an academic scholarship, so it actually doesn't have anything to do with your financial need. It has to do with your academic performance and achievement in high school. Um, and I think one of the things that stood out to me the most was people commented on the fact that they could have gone to school anywhere. Like, they could have, like, like, they spoke to how they, like, they didn't need the scholarship. Like, it was kind of just like this added, like, bonus and for me it was really um, the only way that college was feasible for me as an undergraduate student was to have um, something like that scholarship to support me through so just being around people and knowing that they were kind of like like it wasn't as big of a deal to them because they would have been able to go to college regardless um, I think that was kind of difficult and then also um, I held jobs throughout my entire time as an undergrad, which is another kind of challenge, like as you're already adjusting to this new schedule of, okay, I have classes like three hours a day, what am I going to do with the rest of my time? But really, you have lots you should be doing with the rest of your time. Um, I also, at one point, I worked three jobs. So I think uh, that was also kind of... could lead to some challenges and like I didn't have as much time always to study. And I remember, (laughs) this is just a silly thing, but I remember um, times like I led to problems with my roommate, which is a whole other college adjustment. (laughs) Right.
0: It's on inventory. (laughs) (laughs) Change in living situation. Oh, you have a roommate now.
1: Yeah. So often like I wouldn't get into bed until very late and I'd have classes in the morning. So I would get very little sleep. And I wouldn't wake up from my alarm and she would get very mad about it um, because the alarm was going off and like it was waking her up. So it was just kind of like this thing of like, like I'm exhausted. Like I'm I'm sorry, I'm exhausted. I'm working, like I'm doing everything I can. So I think those were some specific issues that I can recall with that.
2: It makes sense because that's just a specific thing because it's very heart-wrenching the idea that you work so hard, you're so proud of something that somebody's like going nonchalantly. Eh, That's pocket change. Psh, I could have gone anywhere and you're like,
0: oh, this is huge to me. but there also there are a couple things to bear in mind yeah. there. and that the student who was saying, well, I could have gone anywhere that you knew the scholarship didn't really help. They might not have known what the hell they're talking about. either, <laughs> quite frankly like, oh, the scholarship doesn't matter. Yeah, it's because you're not actually paying the bill. And so that's that's one thing. And, and but one interesting uh, with undergrad is that I've dealt with freshmen during orientation. And some of them are very confused by this idea that they're only in 15 hours of classes. Because I had one student come in, and she wanted to take like nine classes. And she was very adamant that, <laughs> she's like, no, but, you know, I'm used to being in class from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. every day. That, that won't work. <laughs> you, you can't do that. <laughs> the university says you're not allowed, I mean, they literally will not allow you to do that. At, uh, or, I don't know about all universities, but specifically at ours. If you go over 18 hours, you have to pay extra. And if you go over 21, you have to get permission from your college's dean and pay extra.
2: Just a few extra things, a few extra steps. What I wanted to kind of talk about is one thing very specific to you and kind of talking about this, like something relating to this, that can't be right idea. Did you have an, uh when you came into undergrad, you said you had a specific plan, right? You kind of had this idea that, I'm going to become a counselor, for lack of a better way of explaining it, for youth, and then you have this and everything. And then that change marked 3.5 years in. So let's talk a little bit about graduate school with that idea. Did you have a plan with that?
1: <laughs> um.
2: <laughs> I think that's the answer. <laughs>
1: so I think coming into graduate school... I knew I wanted to do something with, um, like I said, gifted learners. I don't remember what I wrote on my research statement <laughs> to get into graduate school, but I think it has something. It was
0: apparently fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, it got me here. I think it has something to do with like measurements, like assessing like gifted students early on, like um, so that we could identify them early and intervene. I do nothing related to that. <laughs> I think in graduate school, uh, so I think really, um, I I didn't have a plan, like a solid plan as far as research. And I think that just developed based on the experiences I had and who I was working with as um, a graduate assistant, who I had classes with. Um, I think one thing that um, shifted that I wasn't um, expecting, so I never came into graduate school expecting I'd do a postdoc. After, I thought I would finish my years in graduate school, get my PhD, and then I would be looking for a tenure track faculty position, which I did, but it just didn't it just didn't work out that way. Um, so I had never like come in with the intention of going further with a postdoc. Like I just thought I would um, be starting.
0: Serve your time. Yeah.
2: You, you, okay. would, serve, yes. you would serve your five year sentence and then mm-hmm. you were free.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And they're like, no. Hey, mm-hmm. by the way, we have a second secret outside of comps and qualifying exams Mm -hmm.
1: postdocs. And I think it's more expected in certain fields um, than educational psychology. Like, I don't know if it's something we necessarily expect, but I think other um, degrees may. Um, But I also think it's really a fitting opportunity for me because I think coming in, I went straight from bachelor's to um, PhD. I think it gives me a little more time to refine and kind of apply my skills in different ways. And we all know the... uh,
2: fantastic yeah. interview question like fantastic interview answer of why you want to get a postdoc <laughs> and everything great job but I think at the same time like it's it's still this idea that you I think a lot of people even though we're not talking about it right now but I think a lot of people are under the impression that you serve your time you go on mm-hmm. but postdocs are actually becoming a lot more common for multiple fields even fields that aren't haven't been like that before and that's due to a myriad of uh interactions that we really can't get into right now
0: Postdocs are becoming a lot more common one of our faculty came in and talked to the creativity lab and his comment was that if you wanted to work in an r1 institution assume you're going to have one to two postdocs I like that one to two it's not Uh, just one it's not just one (laughs) it's not just one postdoc you're gonna have some postdocs oh Mm -hmm.
2: you're just sitting there and you're just like so my probation hearing didn't go well so, I think from the general question we got, like, working with you in the past and working with you right now in our program, you're pretty diligent and have almost a schedule to most things, but it seems like even though you kind of have, like, a, a general direction, you didn't really have a plan going in, and that's completely okay, because it seems like you found, like, it's completely, <laughs> one, it's like normal. <laughs> Defending on Monday. Yeah, so that's true. But I was also going, like, but it's just very much, like, I think even then, if you have a general direction, maybe not a plan. Mm can help Mm -hmm. i think i want to get really down into some things that are a little this is just the last more personal question and then we get to the fun part that you already get to do on monday my question for you is something that we've talked about in your past because we differ on this a little bit you have a genuine love for school and just school as i think a whole right Mm -hmm. and and i'm not that i I like what i like but otherwise everything just can buzz off pretty much Um, i am not really interested in other people's Research I'm interested in. Uh, All you monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not even that. It's just like I am. Like, oh my god, that's amazing. I don't want to touch that with like a twenty foot pole. But I, you have a genuine passion for this. So talk to me about it, because this seems to have propelled you to continue your graduation graduate career. Excuse me.
1: Yeah, um, and I think, and I think that really comes from. Um, I mean. Back to when I was little, I think, um, the the first time I remember, like, really, like, I tried to read an encyclopedia at three. What? (laughs) Like, I just (laughs) pulled out an encyclopedia and asked my parents to teach me how to read it. Um, (laughs) because I just wanted, I just wanted to know what was in there. (laughs) Like, there were so many pages, and I just wanted to learn. Yeah, so I think it's kind of always been there, um, and I think it really has kind of um just been fostered like my parents were always really supportive of um my love of learning and I think in several ways they show it as well like um my dad is like constantly teaching himself like new things with like woodworking and like anything that needs fixed like he just he likes to learn how to do it himself but they also like in me so I really loved to read so like the most exciting thing for me was like getting to go to the library so my parents would make that kind of like, it was kind of like a, like a treat, like, you know, um, every couple of weeks we'd get to go to the library. They'd let me get as many books as I wanted. And like, I was more excited to get my own library card than I was my driver's license. Um, like it was just, um, it was more important to me, but my parents have always, um, supported not only me, but I have siblings, um, like our, 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 our drive um, to continue learning and that was always something like they desired for us mm-hmm. so it wasn't something they had thought of or had the opportunity to do for themselves but they always they knew that it could take us to different places than they they were able to go like I remember when I was looking at colleges in undergrad my dad uh, went with me and uh, it, was, it was at the institution I ended up completing my degree at but I was walking around and he was like he, I just remember him telling me, um, I want you to take as much time as you need. I want you to ask as many questions as you want. Like, we'll stay here all day. This is one of the most important decisions you're going to make in your life. And I just want you to know, like, you can just take the time you need. Like, there's just always some um, kind of support for... Um, what um, I wanted to do in that way and I think also like supporting uh, like us finding the right fit for us Mm -hmm. so like my sister started at a four-year institution and in biology and really she wanted to be um, she wanted to work with animals she wanted to be um, she thought a vet but halfway through the year of her first year in undergrad she realized like the the biology program wasn't fitting her like Mm -hmm. it just wasn't working it wasn't where she was meant to be And my parents were very supportive of her kind of withdrawing, but then also looking for other things that were, they helped her look for things that were more suitable to her. Mm -hmm. So she ended up finding a two year, um, like kind of like accelerated um, associates program where she was able to only take classes that applied to her degree and were very lab and skills based. So she was actually working with animals throughout her entire time. So they Mm -hmm. were very supportive of like us doing like what fit for us. So I think um, my parents were very supportive of it in every way that they could yeah. be. So I think that really kind of propelled it um, throughout. And then, I mean, obviously, like I think it's awesome that we get to be in grad school and we just get to learn all the time. Like, weird. Like, weird, how uh, cool is that? Like, we're getting paid to be here and learn things.
2: Like... Weirdly different philosophies. <laughs> um, but it, it. But like. I know that we differ on this, but it sounds like for one, your family just really instilled a passion for learning, Mm -hmm. and I think uh, love of school and learning is similar, which would make sense why you're going into that psych program and everything, uh, and doing educational psychology research. But it makes sense in the long run. I think what really stands out is that you were able to foster this and. Would you say because you had a fostered passion of learning from your family, it really helped you through some more difficult struggles while working in graduate school? Oh, absolutely. Okay. That was like one thing, like I think uh, like some people who come to graduate school, I'm speaking maybe from my own personal belief as I look at Eric. I think personally for me, I can see that sometimes because I didn't initially have that passion for learning, I had an an idea of, I was also a counseling uh, student and that decided to go, nope, I'm out. But I always had the end goal in mind of licensure, and then I never really had this idea of instilling learning. I just had from one point to the next. Now, that's changed with what I'm interested in now, but I know a long times when I was in programs, I struggled with it because I didn't want to learn, and I just, just was like, how is this really benefiting me? But it seems like that helped you a lot more, and especially working with you in the past. This has continued to help you through some more of the difficult stressors of graduate school. Thank you so much for explaining that. That was the the last one we really wanted to talk about. Now we get to the fun part. So your your dissertation defense is Monday. <laughs> yes. So in a few days. Let's let's talk about that. Talk to us about what your research is and then what your future research directions, you know, all those terrible interview questions <laughs> that you've been preparing for a while.
1: Yeah, um, so like I said, my research is looking at how students regulate themselves and their learning differently for an easy and a difficult task. Mm-hmm. So what my dissertation did, I had two stages. Um, in stage one, students completed 12, they were actually GRE problems. Um, and I looked at those problems and I looked at how they performed on them. So did they get them correct? Did they give me an answer? Um, did they give me an answer that was incorrect? Um, I looked at how much time they spent on the problem and then I asked them to rate. As soon as they completed the problem, I asked them, how hard was this problem for you to solve? It was on like a Likert type scale. Um, And I used all of that data to select an easy and a difficult problem for every student. And then I brought them in for these interviews that are structured, they're called um, SRL microanalysis interviews, but what it really means is I had the tasks embedded within an interview and I asked questions about certain self-regulated learning processes. So before they completed the task, I asked them about their self-efficacy, their interest in the problem, um, how they planned to approach it, like what strategies. Then I had them do the problem and ask, okay, what strategies did you use? And then I had after they'd finished, I had them reflect on it. So how well did you perform? Um, and then like, how much effort did you did you put on, into that problem? Um, and I had them do that for the easy and the difficult problem that was selected for them um, so that I could compare, like, did they approach those two problems differently?
2: Okay. So do you have any spoilers for us on the results section or are we just waiting until it's published?
1: Ooh, I don't know. I can give you, okay, so basically what I found some processes differed Mm -hmm. some didn't um what was really interesting though and uh this is kind of like just like a side finding is i asked them at the very end i said okay you solved two problems today problem one and problem two if you had to solve a problem like this in the future which one would you choose to solve and overwhelmingly they picked the easy task so (laughs) that was interesting as in um, uh, well within the gifted field we know like we want learners to be challenged um, but this is saying that, like, there's something there with their motivation may- and the, the strategies that they have that they're not always willing to mm-hmm. approach those difficult tasks. So my research in the future will be looking at how can we help them better approach challenging tasks because we want all students to be able to grow.
0: And that could be the, the attribution element mm-hmm. of it, that they are a smart person. So they really, really want to do the thing that makes them look like <laughs> a smart person as opposed right. to the well, uh, have to right. have to actually be a smart person. Right.
1: But like chances are they will encounter challenge at some point. One would hope. So, yes. <laughs> so, helping them to be able to do that in an effective way is kind of how I... And,
0: and the other thing, I'm, I don't know if you mentioned this or not. So when you ask them how well they did, mm-hmm. as I recall, most people are really bad at gauging how well they did on something. <laughs> Unless it's like an easy task, but it's like, mm-hmm. oh, that was fine.
1: Yeah. yeah. So it's something that we assume gifted learners are better at doing. So we assume they are more accurate and some research has shown that they are in their their self-evaluations. I didn't really look at the outcomes of the problem in my study, so I don't know at this point were they accurate. No. But it's definitely something I could look at moving forward.
2: Cool, so on to that. Future research ideas that you want to share. Now you don't have to go too specific. but Yeah,
1: I don't want any listeners to steal them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a real thing that people don't realize. Ideas are all of a sudden valuable in uh, graduate school.
1: (laughs) So in the future, I guess one of the areas that I want to look at is does like in an authentic task. So something like, so a dissertation, like you're working on that iteratively for, you know, probably over a year in some cases. Um, So how does your perception of difficulty change at Mm -hmm. different phases Mm -hmm. of the task? Um, That's one area that I would like to look into. Yeah, as well as like just looking at how we can, Um, intervene to help students have more adaptive um, approaches when they're encountering challenge so like one of the other so the students were asked in my study um, what would you do if you got stuck solving this problem and like one student in particular actually got stuck on the hard problem and mentioned like oh I got stuck so then I started thinking about my stuck strategies so I wondered if um, if I could better um, help students approach the problem when they got stuck just by saying like hey what were those strategies you could use if you got stuck again just to see if they were then able to transfer and use their strategies
2: great it sounds like fantastic ideas very happy that that is your research because someone needs to do it and you seem to be doing quite well so on with everything in mind we're talking about being a first-gen student do you have any advice for other first-gen students
1: I think the biggest um, piece of advice I would have is do it. Just go ahead and do it. Um, And while you're doing it, make sure you find what fits for you. So like when I came even into this program, like people were finishing in three years. That's not what fit for me. (laughs) Five years fit for me. Just find what fits for you. (laughs) And also, I think finding um, mentors is probably one of the most helpful things. Like I, I, think I've been really lucky in finding amazing mentors throughout my undergrad and my graduate school um, experiences. And I don't know that I would have had the same level of engagement and growth um, without those mentors. So I think just you know being being able to reach out and like you need to fit with your mentor too, like. Because they all have different styles, which I'm sure maybe you guys have talked about in other podcasts. But uh, reaching out and finding a mentor <laughs> that really works for you, I think that that really shaped um, both of my undergrad. Um, you know, just being willing to reach out and try for a graduate degree, coming from those supportive experiences with my undergrad mentor, and then my graduate school mentor has really been amazing at. Um, Challenging me and also um, promoting uh, growth like I I feel like I've grown a lot so.
0: uh, Well, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us today You're a wonderful example of what we often talk about that mm-hmm. people come in to a graduate program with these very clearly delineated impressions of what grad school looks like And they're almost always wrong <laughs> And they think that since they're Well, right. Well, you you think that there's something wrong with you because, oh, I don't know where I need to go to to fill out these forms. I don't know who I want to have as my advisor. I don't know who to have as my assistantship supervisor or who I want to work with or what my research topic is going to be. (laughs) Um, And that's their impression of how grad school works. Assume that you kind of had a little bit of that going on in the back of your head when you, yeah. Well, 100%. Right. So, and that is exactly the point is that we have a very clear schema of grad school that is wrong, mm-hmm. and we assume that because we don't fit that schema well, we're we're kind of doomed, and and, and we're not. Well, I might be, you might, someone else <laughs> might, be. but you're clearly fine. It clearly works out just fine. Uh, just because you uh, because there's been this odd societal con- conception of grad school that you don't fit, that doesn't mean anything. I think that's that's us for this week. Uh, next week we'll talk about something else. And we hope to see you then. Thank you.